How you guys doing? All right, all right. Welcome back to uh, Scotchy Storytelling Extravaganza Wednesday night, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, thank you. There we go. A little golf clap at first, but that's a little bit better. Um, I'm excited about the lineup. I had to bump everybody around a little bit a couple times, and now I think we're all squared away. Um, once again, um, check out the podcast at unclescotchy.com. Uh, Breckenridge Bourbon is our bourbon. I have the shirt now, so that's kind of cool. Thanks to Julio, actually. I guess Ben couldn't get me a shirt. I got a hat, so I guess that's cool. And, um, huh? Where I don't know. It's not there. It's usually there with the... But, but we do have these comfortable yet stylish Uncle Scotchy hats here. These are the new uh, camos that came out, so if anybody wants one, please inquire. Um, our first storyteller here, um, I'm glad she reached out to me. Um, she is from up in Delray. She came all the way down here for this, so people, so be very respectful of her story. If you guys are telling a story to each other, please uh, just keep it to each other during her story, and then there's plenty of time in between these sets to talk. But uh, her, uh, her name is Rebecca Loveless, it is a real name. She owns a tattoo shop called Tradition Tattoo up in Delray. And she has a little place there also called The Coop that she does stand-up comedy. So tattoos, comedy, and here she is. So it's a perfect match. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm scotchy welcome to Rebecca Loveless. Hey, yo, baby. Thanks so much. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. Oh, yes. My name is Rebecca Loveless, and I am here to tell you a true story. And my story is about how I got fired from PETA. Yeah. If you're not familiar with PETA, they are people for the ethical treatment of animals. They're like the ones that like really care about animals. You know, like they'll put red paint on a fur coat. You know, these are the people. Yeah. So like the year is 2006. I am sort of waffling between careers and I find myself in Norfolk, Virginia. This is the headquarters for PETA. And they had a job opening for like a marketing, like entry level, like marketing position. And I interview well, so I got it. And the very first, you know, when they hire you, they, they give you like this giant book. And they're like, hey, Rebecca, welcome to PETA. This is our employee manual. These are all the rules for PETA, you know, and it talks about the history of the company and all the things they stand for, and it was a lot. But I was just like, man, I can't wait to be a good person and to tell my parents I am doing something with my life, you know? I was really excited. And the health benefits, guys, they had health benefits that were amazing. After three months, primo health benefits. And I'm an artist, so I've never had health benefits. I still don't have health benefits, just to be clear, okay? So this was quite a carrot for me. And they're like, all right, Rebecca, like, we're gonna go process all your stuff. You sit here and read this giant book, and uh, we'll be right back. And I'm like, swell. So I grab the book, you know, and I like speed read it as we do, you know, when we think we're being watched. I'm like, oh, this is all very interesting, good stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he comes back in, he's like, do you have any questions on the book? And I was like, no, excellent job. Love the whaling section. Like this stuff looks great. And he's like, excellent, you can start tomorrow. Perfect. So the next day I show up for my first day at PETA and I'm, I'm like, I'm gonna look adorable. 
And I did, and I wore like a, a nice cute little skirt, little matching sweater, perfect little scarf in my hair, and I go to work. And I get in the elevator. And this woman gets in the elevator with me. And guys, I kid you not, I, she got in the elevator, she looked me up and down, and she goes, ah! And then did that, so rude, right? Like, I'm from Boca Raton, I know rude, this lady was rude. And I was like, good morning. She didn't say anything. And I'm like, what is this? This is my first day, guys, first day, okay? So I'm like, whatever. She gets off the elevator. I'm like, all right. I don't know the secret handshake or something. And I find my guy, Dave, who's my super, you know, superintendent or whatever, my boss. And I'm like, hey, Dave, what's up? He's like, hey, Rebecca, good to see you. Here's your desk. And I'm like, oh, thanks. And I sit at my desk. And like literally by the time I finish looking through the drawers, I see the lady from the elevator come to my floor. And I'm like, this has got to be a coincidence, right? And she sees my boss, and she like sees my boss, and she's like, hey, I need to talk to you. And she does one of these. And I'm like, I'm sure this isn't about me, right? So Dave goes over, you know, and he's talking to the mean lady from the elevator, and, you know, and I'm seeing this. First day, first day, one. Da -da -da -da. It's a heated conversation. Like, maybe this isn't about me. Like, maybe I'm being paranoid. Maybe this isn't about me. But then Dave turns, and he makes a beeline right to me. And he's like, Rebecca, listen. And I'm like, hey, Dave. He's like, Rebecca, we, I know it's your first day. Um, you've read that handbook, right? And I'm like, oh, the PETA handbook? Yeah, I totally read every word to that. It's a great handbook. He's like, I, I, I believe you, but I'm going to need you to see you in the conference room. And I'm like, the conference room? Oh, no, this is bad. So I go to the conference room, and I sit down. And, like, I have no idea why I'm in trouble. Like, I have no idea why I'm in trouble. And, and Dave, he tells me, you know, he's like, hey, I, I think you met Eleanor in the uh, elevator. And I was like, yeah, I said hi to her, but, man, she, did, she seemed a little grouchy this morning. You know, like, she really just... And he's like, and I'm like, you know, I don't know if you guys, like, don't, aren't supposed to say anything. He's like, no, no, it's not that. He's like, Rebecca, it's what you're wearing. I'm like, what I'm wearing? I got on a cute little, I'm like, what, what is it? I'm like, is it my skirt? I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. He's like, it's your scarf. Your scarf, Rebecca. You're wearing a silk scarf. The worms. The poor Fucking worms, guys. And like PETA, PETA stands for everyone, even the worms. And Dave tells me this. He's like, we stand for everyone here, even the worms. And, and you can't have any type of animal byproduct or product in the building. Uh, Rebecca, I, I don't, I need you to not only take the scarf off, but I need you to get it off the premises. And I'm like, holy shit, like this is serious. Okay. Like, I am sorry, you know? And I was, I was sorry. I didn't know about the worms. Like, I wasn't wearing an alligator suit, you know? Like, I wasn't wearing a fur coat. Like, it was a silk scarf. Like, come on. And I, I was like, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm really sorry. Yes, no problem. I took the scarf off. I put it in my car. And I had to drive my car across the street so the scarf wasn't on property. They were serious about it. I'm like, okay. <sighs> You know, and he's like, listen, I know it's your first day. 
let's just grow from this. And I'm like, awesome, man. Like, namaste. You know, like, it's going to be fine. It's still going to be fine. So, like, the, so the next day I show up to work, and it's, it's gotten out about the scarf, okay? Like, people have talked. It's just like the PETA thing. Man, they talk like rabbits over there. And I get to my desk, and there's a pamphlet on the worms on my desk. <laughs> so I can inform myself. And, and as if the, the entire office didn't know who the girl was who wore the silk scarf, they knew now, right? Like, it was pretty obvious at this point. So I'm not, I'm not making friends. And, and uh, maybe a week goes by. And it's pouring down rain, and I'm driving, I'm driving to PETA, and I'm, I'm just like, all right, man, this is, wow, it's nasty out. And I see, I like see this little homeless-looking kid walking to the headquarters. I'm like, oh, my God, he works with me. <gasps> this is my future friend. So I pull over, because it's pouring, I mean, it's pouring out. And I go, yo, like, Sakato, I don't remember his name, Sakato, yo, hey, hey, what's up? And he like stops and he, you know, he does the thing. I'm like, get, you know, get in. And Sakato, he like opens the door and he's like, oh, hey, thanks so much. And, uh, and he looks in my car and then he looks back at me and he goes, you know what? I'm going to walk. And he slams the door and then like walks away, kind of in like a mean way. I'm like, what was that? I was like, did I leave the scarf in the back seat? I was like, why? That was rude, right? And I'm like, that was rude. That was rude. So whatever. He's angry walking. It's still, I still got to go to work. So I go to work, you know, park my car. Me and my Mini Cooper, we got out of there. And, um, you know, I went up to my desk and sat at my desk and was just like, that was weird man, that was weird. And sure as shit, Sakato comes to my floor. He sees Dave. He does this. (laughs) I'm like, man, this is not about me. This can't be about me. I'm like, what did I do? And I see them talking. And of course, Sakato's soaking wet. I mean, he's probably not. He's having a rough day. Maybe this isn't me, right? It's not my fault. I'm like, man. Dave comes over to me. And he's like, Rebecca, you... You read that handbook, right? That employee. <laughs> I never read it, guys. Guys, just so you know, never read the thing. He's like, you read the handbook. I'm like, yeah, Dave, totally read the handbook. I'm like, I offered that guy a ride. I don't, he's like, I, it's, let's just speak in the conference room. And I'm like, no. So we go to the conference room, and I sit down. And I'm like, like a little mad. Because in my mind, I just offered this guy a ride. That's what I did. I'm like, I am such an asshole for offering Sakato a ride, you know? And, and so Dave comes in, and I'm like, Dave, I'm just a nice person here, okay? I know everyone's mad at me about the scarf still. I'm just trying to make friends. He's like, it's not about that. It's not about that. And, and you know what, Rebecca? You are doing a good job. I want you to know. With your job, you actually are doing a really good job. Your, your work is really good. But I, I have to talk to you about your car. And I'm like... My car? I love my car. Like, I'm from Boca. My dad bought me my car. All right? And I'm like, what is wrong with my car? And he's like, you have leather seats. And I'm like, of course I do. (laughs) 
he's like, Rebecca, I just, you can't, I don't know how to, you can't park your car at PETA anymore. I'm going to need your parking pass. And until you have a car that doesn't have leather seats, I'm afraid you can't park here anymore. <laughs> I'm like, what? I've been here a week. This isn't going well. I'm like, oh, man, okay, fine. I, you know what, Dave? I respect you, okay? I respect this company. And frankly, I really wanted the health benefits. <laughs> so I was like, fine. So I went to my desk, and I got my parking decal, and I, I handed it in, okay? And, um, you know, and I, I couldn't park at PETA anymore, you know, so. But I, I also know this is my second strike. And if I get three strikes, I'm going to get fired. And I also know I've only been there a week, and i got to make it three months <laughs> to get the health benefits. I'm not doing great. And everyone doesn't, nobody likes me. Sakato snitched, obviously. The whole office knew about the tires. You know, and like who snitches, just a side note, who snitches about leather seats? You know, like what? I just want to say, wherever you are, Sakato, I hope you know I'm still pissed about this. Just putting it out there. So fine. So I realize I'm not going to win over the office, Okay. So if I could just, God, if I could just make Dave like me, maybe, maybe I'll make it to health benefits, right? Like I just wanted the gyno checkup. You know what I mean? Like I just, just I didn't want to go to Planned Parenthood again. Just a normal doctor. I was like really just, oh, yes. So I just focused on Dave. So every day Dave would come in and be like, oh, my God, Dave, you look great. You and the wife doing vegan again? <laughs> I bet you are. <laughs> How are those hamsters doing? Did they like the new tunnel? Oh, my God. I mean, I'm keeping track of everything about Dave. My whole world is Dave. Tofu sandwich looks delicious, like, every day. Just, man, please like me. If he likes me, and I think it's working. Because I go a couple weeks without any new pamphlets showing up on my desk. And I'm thinking, I'm going to make it. It was maybe a month in. And I get, I get, you know, I have like a little sweet tooth. So you know those like, you know those cupcakes? They're, they're like Hostess cupcakes. They're black. And they got like a white little squiggle of icing down the middle. You guys know these cupcakes? Everyone knows, right? They come in like a little plastic thing. You get two in them. Everyone knows this, right? This is a universal. Exactly. The ho-ho cupcakes. So me, not being a ho-ho myself, I... You know, I grab one out, I hand one to Dave, I go, hey, Dave, let's get in on this, huh? A little afternoon delight, you know? And you're like, oh, my God, thank you. And I remember I took my cupcake, and he had his cupcake, and we even did the little cupcake cheers where we're like, yeah, yes. And we ate them. And I was like, yes. And I went back to work, and I sat down, I just went back to work, and I'm feeling awesome. I'm feeling good. I'm like... Man, Rebecca, you're doing great. Like an hour goes by, and Dave comes up to my desk, and he goes, hey, Rebecca, I don't want to accuse you of anything, but my stomach really hurts. What was in that cupcake? And I'm like, cupcake? What cupcake? We, psh, I ain't a cupcake? I don't remember. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like, just deny. <laughs> 
Like, what? He's like, the cupcake that you gave me. What? I think I'm going to need to see the wrapper. And I'm like, the wrapper? I have no idea where that is. Like, I, I, I'm pretty sure I took it downstairs and recycled it. Like, it's somewhere. I definitely walked with it somewhere, and it's far, far away. I don't know where it is. I have no idea where it is. And he's like, Rebecca, I'm going to need to look. I just, I don't want to accuse you. I'm sure it's fine. But I'm going to need the wrapper. And I'm having, like, like just flashes of health insurance <laughs> racing through my head. I'm like, Dave, I swear I have no idea where the wrapper is. And he's like, do you mind if I look in your trash bin? And I'm like, oh, what? It's probably not in there. I mean, why would it be in there? He's, and I'm like, I mean, I don't think it's in there, Dave. And like, he's like kind of getting a little pushy. And I'm like, oh, man, this is happening. Okay. I'm like, well, if you want to go through trash, fine. But the cupcake's eaten. I remember saying that. I remember like, you already ate it. Like, like that was... It's your choice. <laughs> so he, he walks over and he reaches in the bin and it was like right on top. I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't have time to hide it. And he pulls it out and shakes his head. And it had like dairy, eggs, unbleached calf. I mean, it was all in there. And he, he told me, he said, you know, this is it, Rebecca. Like you brought... This is your third strike. And guys, that is how I got fired from PETA. Thank you so much. Rebecca Loveless, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for her. Awesome. Got fired for ho-hos. He didn't even do anything. You didn't touch anybody. She got fired for ho-hos. <laughs> Give her Rebecca one more time. Coming down from Delray, telling you this story, ladies and gentlemen. If you're up there, check out her shop. We got a first-time storyteller coming up, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's been nervous about it. Please be respectful of him. This one's going to be loud, so we got to figure this out. But otherwise, let's be respectful of the story, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I got a guy coming up. He's been a good friend of mine for a while. He's a musician, and now he's transitioning. Transitioning to the boxer, yeah? So this guy agreed to tell a story, but then he didn't realize he was actually going to have to tell a story. And then now he's nervous as fuck. So uh, he's a good guy. I'm looking forward to hearing his story, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for the great Aaron Glukoff. Great dude, great drummer. Good boxer. Love you, man. Thanks, everybody. Well, it's sort of ironic that I'm nervous for this. I've been... Uh, on stage in some way or some fashion for the last uh, 25 years of my life. But um, bear with me. I uh, recently started a podcast, and um, my next episode is with my good buddy Eric Garcia. And he was like, if I'm going to do the, you know, this podcast with you, I'm going to also need you to come tell a story on my storytelling night. So here I am. <laughs> <laughs> How are all of you? It's amazing how bright these lights are, because I can't actually see you, and I can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we're going to find out. So I thought it fitting to tell my story of my recent boxing uh, journey. Um, I'm now two fights deep into my amateur boxing career, and um, thank you. <laughs> with a recent victory in a state championship. And, and I honestly, I, 
I wouldn't be, and this is why it's fitting to tell this story or whatever it is that I'm going to say, is uh, because Eric Garcia here is a former boxer himself. And, um, well, you're never a former boxer. He's a boxer. And, and he helped, helped me uh, navigate this path. You know, when I was uh, growing up, I, um, I ended up moving to Gainesville, Florida. And <laughs> in third grade, I had no friends. I didn't know anybody. And my mom brought home a brochure for uh, at this dojo. They were teaching fencing. And she was like, this is good. You need to get your energy out. You'll meet people. And I, so I started fencing. And that eventually led to a passion, uh, a, a deep passion. And I went on to compete in Junior Olympics. And I, I was on a path and... You know, my, everyone had big expectations for me. I, people thought I was going to be in the Olympics. And I, I was on that path. I was doing everything you need to do to do that. And then I moved to Miami. And at the same time, I was practicing music. And I was into music. And, and they were coinciding paths. But, of course, the fencing was taking precedence until I moved here. And at that time, I knew that... Um, you can't make a living fencing. You, you could go to the Olympics, but I don't know if any people know this here, but Olympic athletes, they don't always end up like Michael Phelps. They, it's, it's hard. It's hard to dedicate your life to something that you can't make a living off of. Really hard. <laughs> and um, something that serious requires all of yourself. And so I figured if I'm going to give my, all of myself into something, maybe I can put it into something that I can make a living doing, and that was music. So fast forward to, uh, you know, my uh, early 20s, and I'm a professional musician, and I'm paying my rent, and I'm just paying my rent, <laughs> and everything's good. There was another thing that was a passion of mine, something that I always idealized, put on a pedestal as a kid, and that was partying. I wanted to fucking party. I saw my older sister's party, and I wanted to get in that party, man. I was ready to, I wanted to smoke, I wanted to drink, I wanted to do drugs, I wanted to do it all. And I was doing it. <laughs> I was full in exactly where I wanted to be. And five years of that, I, you know, got some good gigs, got to tour around the world and do some cool stuff and meet cool people. And I hit a point where I had pushed the party to, to the limit, and I was hitting lows that I didn't know how to get out of. I was, I was, I was in a place where I needed a resurrection. I needed a re-inspiration. I needed something new to put my energy into. Um, and so I started working out again, and I started finding that, that thing inside of me, and I even went vegan for a month, for a month. Because eating lentils just don't do it, do it for me. But uh, one day I'm in the park where I go to run or whatever. Mind you, I haven't stopped partying. I'm, you know, two, two days removed for a late night. I'm going for my run. And I'm in the park and I see a guy giving somebody mitts, you know, training a guy in boxing. And right away I saw that. I was like man, I, I, I got to get some of that. Now, that looks cool because there's something about going to L.A. Fitness and lifting, doing bicep curls, and I'm not hating 
if that's your thing, but that just wasn't doing it for me. And so I, I hit the guy up and I was like, yo, I'd love to train with you. I'd love to, you know, get, get some of this work. So I gave him his whatever per hour and started doing mitts. Shortly after that, I started going home after these training sessions and looking up boxing. Now, I didn't grow up in a house where we watched boxing. Not a lot of people do. Um, it's uh, a sport that was super popular at one point, two generations ago. You know, your grandparents watched a lot of boxing. They watched Muhammad Ali fight Joe Frazier. But that wasn't what I was watching. I was watching the NBA. You know, I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana. We were watching Reggie Miller. Um, getting beat by Michael Jordan. And uh, so, you know, I started watching these boxers. And just like with drumming, I found heroes. And I feel like with heroes, that's where you really, that's where you find your thing. You got to find people that you identify with, that you want to be like them, even if it's impossible, even if it could never happen. You can't be anybody else. But I love to impersonate other people. So I started getting in. I discovered a guy named Vasily Lomachenko. And I was like, this is the shit. This guy's crazy. What's he doing in the ring? You know, I'd never been punched in the face yet. So <laughs> I'm watching him. I'm thinking, this is, this is what I want to do. I haven't even been hit yet. Uh, so I, I went back to this trainer. We've been going a couple weeks. I'm like, I want to be a professional boxer, man. Oh, yeah. And he was like, he laughed at me. He's like, you come and train with me once a week. You're always hungover. I'm like, yeah, but I love this, man. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, I knew that training with him was not going to be the route. You know, if you want to be a boxer on any level, if you want to compete, it's a lifestyle. It's not just, you know, you don't just hit mitts a couple days it's, it's, it's your whole life. It's every day. It's, it's running 20 miles a week, strength training, sparring, headaches, pain, not just physical pain, but psychological pain, the pain of losing, which is worse than physical pain for me as a competitor. So, you know, I'm going down the route and I'm thinking, I got to get more serious about this. I really want to do something with this. I got to find out what to do. So I talked to my friend Rodrigo Zambrano and he tells me, Yo, Eric Garcia, he knows boxing. He was a boxer. I'm like, no shit, Eric? That kind of makes sense. He looks like he's a fucking boxer. So, <laughs> so I call Eric, and um, I'm like, Eric, what do I do, man? And, like, and Eric, you know, he's done this shit on a level that you can't really even comprehend as he's sitting here tonight. I know what he's been through in that ring after everything I've been through, and I can, I got nothing but mad respect, real pro sparring sessions, real hard sessions, it's no joke, you can't play boxing, you can play basketball, you can't play boxing, it's a fight, you know, you, you're getting hit, so, uh, it's not the matrix, you, you get hit, but, uh, so he told me, man, Steve Alinko is, uh, owns this boxing gym, you got to hit him up, man. He's a bass player, too. He's a musician like us. I'm like, oh, perfect. And I remember that day, man, like so specifically. I'm in my studio. I'm practicing what I should be doing. <laughs> and I called Steve. And I'm like, Steve, I heard you got this boxing gym. Eric knows about it. He told me. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll set you up with this guy. So 
Then I met uh, Jose Fernandez. He was my, one of my first boxing trainers. And we start working mitts. And I start going to a real boxing gym, and it's got all the bags and shit. It's got the double end, and people are working in there. People are getting hit. I'm like, oh, this is something. And we start training, and his price point for personal training is still too high <laughs> to get to where you want to go if you really want to compete. Now, he did say to me at this point, he said, uh, you know, we started training. He's like, you could compete if you want to. And even Eric told me, like, you could compete. And I'm like, that was the moment uh, that changed my whole life because there was, a, there was like a little bit of fire on wood about boxing for me. And mind you, I'm still partying. I'm still putting shit up my nose. I'm still getting fucked up all the time. But I'm running the next day, <sighs> you know. But I'm, I'm working out. I'm earning it. I'm earning my drugs. So... Um, <laughs> so <laughs> then uh, I realized you actually got to do this shit every day. So I'm like, who the fuck can I afford to train me every goddamn day? So I'm in the gym and these guys set up this slip rope across the ring. It's like an X. You dip your head under it. You work your punches while you're moving your head. That's really important, by the way, in a fight. You got to move your head so it doesn't so they can't punch it. Um, <laughs> and Dave, this guy, who's the gym manager, comes to me, he's like, what are you doing, man? You're all stiff. You look like... But I'm like the one white guy in this place. At any place I went and boxed, I was the one white guy. Of two, one or two white guys. There was a white guy, you know, and I'll get to this at the end, who got knocked out in my second fight in the tournament. He was white. So... <laughs> So anyway, I, uh, yeah, so Dave tells me, look, you give me this, this bit of money, I'll train you five days a week. I'm like, word? I can get you, pay you for a month, you train me five days a week? All right. So boom, we start training. Um, little did I know that Dave, now he's a good workout trainer, but he ain't no fight coach. Now, <laughs> there are fight coaches, and then there are workout coaches. They're two different things. Now, boxing is popularized now. It's a, it's a posh workout. When you're hitting your bags, doing all that shit, the title boxing fight club downtown. Th those aren't boxing gyms. There's only a few real boxing gyms in this city, and we know which ones they are because <laughs> you came up in one, so you know what it is. And I started learning the ropes. I was hit up Eric every once in a while. I'd be like, you know, am I doing this right? And I just didn't feel like I was progressing I didn't feel like I was getting to my goal. So with Dave, after a little time, he starts, finally, I get my chance to get in the ring. And I'm feeling myself. I got this training partner, Fabio. He's training with Dave, too. And I feel good against him. You know, I'm throwing my jab. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good. Like, everything's going well. And then eventually I get tested. And, man, that did not go well. <laughs> I found my fear, you know? I found my real fear of this shit and fear of getting hurt. So then I start to double it up. I start going on Google and looking up concussions. I start Googling, what are the dangers of boxing? What happened? <laughs> and uh, there's apparently a lot. It's not good for you. 
I didn't know if anybody knew that. <laughs> Getting hit the head. So the fear, not only researching it, but being in that moment was, was growing. And I was, I was so scared. And I was so scared to engage. I was so scared to get hit. And not to draw this out too long, but the next two years, I always knew I was going to get to my goal. But I had no idea yet how hard this journey was going to be for me how much I was going to have to rewire everything that is biologically given to you to get to where I want to go. You are wired to blink when things come at your face. You are, you are wired for self-preservation. You are survivors. Everyone in here, even though you're drinking and smoking cigarettes, there's a deep part of you that wants to live. And when you're in that ring and there's four corners... All of that shit comes up. The fight or flight. It's, it's something people talk about, fight or flights. It, you, you can't know what that is until you experience it. And when you're in there, you feel it. It turns on. Your brain knows there's danger coming towards you. <laughs> I wasn't reacting well. So Dave, my coach, he kept, he'd be on the side of the room and be like, you're scared. He, you're scared. I'm like, I'm not scared. <laughs> backing away and I wasn't being taught right I wasn't being taught right you, you know he was trying to throw me in the wolves he wanted me to just take eight punches to throw one and in the back of my head I, want, I was like I want to do this sport I want to do it but I want to be safe man I don't want to have a concussion every week <laughs> I don't want to be have my nose like this you know I don't want to have my nose broken and Eric's had his nose broken, so he could tell you <laughs> many times. It happens. Uh, mine has softened. Uh, it can bend now. Uh, he told me I had a good nose for boxing when I started, so that meant a lot to me, actually. Thank you. Um, <laughs> quelled my fear, as it were. But uh, So after some time with Dave, I was getting frustrated, and I was like, I had, I, you know, of course, I'm an extremist. Everything I do has got to be maxed out. If it's partying or if it's exercise or whatever the fuck it is, I go all in. So I was like, it was Christmas break. I was like, you know what? This guy's not teaching me shit. Let me find the best amateur boxing gym in Miami. I'm going there. So my white ass drove to Hialeah. And I joined up at a gym called KO Fitness. And it's the hardest toughest, roughest, baddest-ass boxing gym in Miami. A little freaking garage-looking place. These dudes are not playing. <laughs> not playing. I showed up. I'm like, I want to join the amateur boxing team. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike Robles looks at me. He's like, how old are you? I'm like, I'm 29. He's like, you're a fucking dinosaur. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 but I got athletic experience. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's, like, he's like, man, I'd be happy to put you in there to get knocked the fuck out. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I gave him my debit card and signed up for a month. So I'm training. I'm feeling good. No one's put me in the ring yet. And... This was the hardest training I'd ever done. And the one thing I learned there is uh, what I thought was how hard you train in boxing, I had no idea. These motherfuckers 
are running four miles, strength training, sparring, sprinting in the same day, five days a week. It's just nuts. It's going off. I would do these training sessions. They give me my workout program for the day. I'd have to sleep three hours when I get home. I couldn't even practice my instrument anymore. I was so tired. My body was spent. It was changing. I was adapting. And so finally, I get in the ring with the guy. And it goes pretty well. Like, we do a little, little light thing, you know, with a guy my level. You know, they try to do that in boxing. In a boxing gym, they try to find your weight, try to find your level, match with guys. But eventually, you got to get with guys better than you. And I was in a rush. You know, I was, I was in a rush. Mind you, I haven't stopped the coking and the smoking and the drinking. I'm doing all that shit. I'm still training my ass off. And <laughs> that shit catches up to you, though. You know, it was like every month I was rebuilding. Like, I'd be in great shape, and then I'd kill it, and then I'd have to restart. And then these guys started noticing, like, man, you're getting so tired in the ring. It's like, oh, I'm good. Oh, yeah. It's like, and anxiety gets you tired, too. You know, I was scared. I was still scared. I never broke through that barrier. I was still scared to get hit. There was a couple times me and Eric got together. So me and Eric found this ring. This is a real story. We found just a caveat real quick. We, we what is it, 130th in US 1? We found a ring by the Taco Bell, and we start meeting up for sparring. Eric's one of the first guys to give me, wah, good hit. Poof, splatted me like a bug on a, on a web. And I'm like, but there's a ring. <laughs> They're like, no. Just, there's little kids from soccer practice. They're like, the police are like, just, you guys got to go. Um, so Eric, of course, Eric's like, let's just go to my front yard. I'm like, you're going to, you want to punch me in your front yard? I'm like, hey, I'll see you there. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so the coach at KO Fitness, he realizes I'm in a rush and he doesn't like it. And he's like, you're in a rush. And I, you know, I was looking for something, man. I was looking for a way out of myself. I was looking for a panacea. I was looking for something that doesn't exist, something that can alter you forever and then you're, your proclivities towards doing bad don't come up anymore. That doesn't exist. Even, in, even after all my experience, you know, I can tell you, it, there's, no, there's nothing that will change you but you, you know, deeply inside. So one day, you know, coach, I, I'm asking for more sparring. I'm asking for more sparring. My sparring hasn't been going well. I'm asking, I want to spar, I want to spar. He's like, oh, you want to spar? These motherfuckers go to McDonald's, come back. <laughs> and they're like, get in the ring. I'm like, all right, like, you're getting in with, with Aaron. I'm Aaron. The other Aaron is his son, who has 190 fights in Puerto Rico, is a national champion, and he just fought on the Canelo undercard two months ago. Look him up. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, fuck. I'm about to get my ass kicked. So that's what happened. <laughs> I got my ass kicked, I mean, real hard. And I found, I, I, was, I was getting my ass beat so bad, I just started taking a fucking knee as he was coming, which is a no-no in the code of warriors. You don't fucking take a knee. You got to take your punishment like a man. At least that's the mentality. But I'm not 100% a boxer. I'm a musician. I got to live. I got to live my life. Sorry. Uh, so... He was extra pissed that I took the knee. I got out of the ring. My head hurts. I'm all fucking blurry. 
Never been hit that hard. And coach is like, motherfucker. He's like, you taking a knee. He's like, if that was me up there, I'd whoop your ass while you're on the fucking ground, man. Telling me that in front of all the other boxers, calling me out. I've never been so low, man. I was here. I was this big. I was so, I wanted to cry, you know, grow. I'm the oldest motherfucker in this gym. I wanted to cry my eyes out. He's just beating him. He's like, you took a fucking knee. I'd kick your ass while you're on the ground. So I never came back. <laughs> I went to a gig that I had to play La Yop that night. And I'm slurring my words. I got a concussion. I'm all fucked up. I'm taking Excedrin, taking Tylenol. And my buddy Jason, my bandmate's like, dude, this is not good. You need to quit this sport. So I'm like, yeah, you're right. I got to quit. And I did for two weeks. I quit. <laughs> and I went back to Dave. The one who can't teach me how to fight. I'm like, Dave, I surrender. Give me your mitts. I'm happy. Punch. I just want to work out now. <laughs> Two weeks later, I got the itch. Man, when that bug bites you, it bites you, man. When, when, when I get something in my head, when I get a passion in my head, especially when motherfuckers try to tell me I can't do something, that's when I know I'm going to do it. But I wasn't there yet. I wasn't ready. And Eric, you know, as much as he tried to help me <laughs> through this, you know, he was, he's wired different. I was wired different. You have to, un, especially at a later age, it's like with roller coasters. When I was seven, I, I was fearless. I would ride any roller coaster. And then now I'm terrified. I won't do shit at Santa's Enchanted Forest. I won't. <laughs> Seriously. Like my girlfriend will tell you, like, I will not ride those. I'm, I'm terrified. And, and I feel like that's what happened. I had to rewire. You have to reprogram. You have to stare in the face of pain and, and, and what's coming at you. You got to be relaxed. You got to want it. I wasn't there yet. So I go back to Dave. Long story short, I'm like, nah, this ain't really working out. I'm going to go with that coach at the same gym. And that was a whole drama. I didn't know that, you know, boxing coaches have a weird territorial thing. It's because you're paying them. And then, long story short, Jorge gets fired from the gym. He's not there anymore. Now I need another coach. So it started, Eric introduced me to Steve, who introduced me to Jose. Then I met Dave. Then I went to this other gym, back to Dave, to Jorge. Now he's gone. My goal is still on my mind, though. So I start training with the coach, who is now still my coach, and ultimately the person who got me to where I wanted to be, and that was Nene. And he brought, brought me down. He's old, man. This guy is in his late 60s. He still shaves his arm like he's a bodybuilder. And, and he trained the Havana national team. I'm like, I want to fight. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, I want to fight. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, you look, yeah. And he would do an impersonation of me fighting, every, sparring every time I would ask him. He'd be like, no, no. So six months pass. I'm like, coach, I still want to fight. He's like, ah, ah. It was like he had something bad in his mouth. He tasted. He's like, ah, no, you fighting? So COVID hits. <laughs> now, I'm, I, I don't know if this is the same with you guys, but I was drinking a lot that summer, man. I started drinking. Woo. I was drinking at home. Still running, though. Uh, still doing my thing, but I was drinking. And 
I'm training and it's August and my buddy Ming from the gym, a Chinese dude who is the toughest motherfucker I ever met, literally, and he's like, I'm signing up for this tournament. You come with me. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, Sugarbird tournament. I'm like, they're having boxing tournaments during COVID? I can't even go to the bar. He's like, yeah. So in that moment, fucking heart starts pounding. Because I knew in that moment, I'm going to do this shit. This is my moment. And when you know that moment's coming and you can't not step through the door, it's like, it's the heaviest thing. It's like, it's taking you over. Oh shit. I'm really going to fucking do this. I text Eric. I'm like, I'm going to fight. He's like, you needed to fight a long time ago. I was like, I know, but this is it. This is my moment. So <laughs> I sign up and my girlfriend and I were talking about, she's like, you know what? If any time you're going to fight, you got all this time. Now you can really train extra. And that was the truth. So I started training twice a day. I quit drinking. I quit smoking. I was sober. Man, I haven't been sober since I was fucking 15. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking no weed, no alcohol, no cigarettes, nada. Sober. Just training, 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 training. And one thing about fighters and fighting is when you know you're going to fight, it's not just the physical preparation, it's the mental preparation. Every single day you wake up knowing you're going to fight. You never wake up not thinking it. You go to sleep thinking about you're going to fight. You wake up, I'm going to fight. It's, it's, it takes over your whole fucking life. It's, it's every single being. You're, you're, you're so on. You're so alert. And it's a terrifying feeling, but I kind of miss it right now because it is something. It is, it is, you know what I'm talking about. It's just, there's an aliveness, man. It's like, you know, your, your mind knows. It's not even like an intellectual process. It's like physiological. Like, you know you're going to battle. You're going to war. You're going to get hit. You're going to get hurt. And you got to choose to win. You got to choose to win. Anyway, so now flash forward a little longer. I'm through my training camp. It's time. I'm on my last sparring session. And I see my coach, these new guys that come in to spar, and which is customary when you're getting ready for a fight. You gotta spar new guys, you gotta simulate. And when it's your home turf, you gotta protect home turf. When guys come from another gym to your gym, it's on. You gotta, you gotta show out. It's aggressive. It ain't like sparring guys at your gym or like me and Eric sparred. We cheat each other right. We treat each other like we care about each other. You don't treat someone like that who comes from another gym. You treat them like nothing. You wanna hurt them. And we're going to get in that sparring session. I see my coach talking about me with the other coaches, and he's downplaying me to, to make himself feel better in case I suck. And that shit hurt me so fucking bad right before I'm about to go on emotionally. I was like, right? I was like, wow, this motherfucker done betrayed me. I'm about to go up there and punch this. But I was on one, man. I was, I was like, fuck this motherfucker. Man, that shit killed me, but made it through. So generally speaking, here's another thing. It's like when you go to a fight, especially your first, your coach is generally with you. Now, my coach doesn't go to fights. He doesn't train fighters like that anymore. He trains them, but then the other coach at the gym basically ends up cornering them. It's this weird thing. He's like, ah, he's not that into it. But I got to take what I got when I got. So the point is I booked the Airbnb and I drove myself. And I'm starving. I'm 148 pounds. I'm almost six feet tall. 
148 pounds. You know why? Because when you fight in the amateurs, you got to weigh in the day of. Now, in the pros, they weigh in the day before. So you got all that time to hydrate, eat pasta, Pedialyte, whatever the fuck. Not in amateur boxing. Amateur boxing, and it's a tournament. You might fight twice. Every morning, 7 a.m., bam, you got to hit that scale. You got to be under 152. Now, that's my weight class, 152 pounds. I'm 148 pounds. I walk around. I'm 160 pounds right now. So I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm dehydrated. <sighs> okay. Now I'm driving myself up. Bye, baby. Kiss my girl. Okay. Drive up to the tournament. Got my little trailer. Fucking hungry. Ready to go. This is what you do. And um, I needed a guy to work my ring. Now here's a circle, a, a story come back full circle. Glenn Johnson Happened to be at the tournament, and if I give him a little bread, he'll work my corner. Now, Glenn is a local legend who Eric has known for a long time. He fought Roy Jones Jr. He knocked him out. He's a freaking legend. Jamaican dude, really tough, and he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> now, when you go to the fight, I'm weighed in. Everything's good. I saw my opponent. You know, dude's straight, no fat on his body, guys, chiseled. He's got six fights under his belt. He doesn't look like a pushover. And I see him. We both weigh in 148 pounds. We got some rehydrating to do. See you tomorrow uh, or tonight or whatever it was. But you weigh in the day, the day of. You see him in the afternoon. And at the tournament, you got the conference room on this side. Has three rings under it. And on this side is just this small room where all the fighters are in. All of us watching each other warm up. Watching each other tape up. Everybody, literally the guy I fought was with his kids in the corner. We're all there. And small people go first, big people go later. So I'm thinking I'm ready at 3 p.m. And the whole point is you're trying to not let your adrenaline wear you out ahead of time. And I thought I was going to fight at 4 p.m. I didn't go in the ring until 9 p.m. I literally was falling asleep. Two hours before my fight, I'm like, Glenn... I'm getting ready, and Glenn says to me, he's like, look at me, look at me. If you embarrass me up there, I'm going to fucking walk out. Okay, okay. <laughs> Two hours before tip off. Great. Anyway, move forward. It's time, baby. It's 9 p.m. Woo, okay, we're going. Get my shit, got my, got my gloves. We're all, I'm ready, man. We're going, we're going. We go to up, you know, get up to the ring. Mouthpiece, mouthpiece. Glenn, where's the fucking mouthpiece? Dude had dropped the mouthpiece in the locker room. Ref looks at me. Yo, if you don't get the mouthpiece, we're gonna, you're not fighting. I did not come all this way to not fight. Thank God. <laughs> Thank whatever. Rick, I had an extra mouthpiece in the locker room, and my buddy Ricky, my good friend Ricky, who stuck it out with me all day, waited all day to be there with me. He was drunk as fuck because they sell drinks. He's like, dude, I got to go home. Like, you got to stay with me. I'm losing my fucking mind. I'm so nervous. Goes and gets the mouthpiece. I have an extra old ass mouthpiece. Just happened to still have this mouthpiece. I could have gotten rid of this because I have another new one, a better one, a custom one. This is some shit you can buy at CVS. And it, I haven't washed it in months it's dirty. Whatever. Put it in my mouth. Ding, ding, ding. We fight. <sighs> Man, that was the first time getting, you know, when you spar in boxing, 16-ounce gloves. When you fight, 
at my weight class is 12s. Those things hit different. So we come out to the bell, come to the bell. And I'm in my, I'm fighting southpaw right-handed because I want to be like Vasily Lomachenko. And bam, get hit in the head. Well, that was different. That's what a 12-ounce glove feels like from a, a strong dude. All right, we get through the fight. I, I feel good about myself. I feel like I won. He gets his hand raised. It's a split decision. Two judges for him, one for me. That's, you know, you walk away with your head high on your first fight, losing a split decision. And, I, and Glenn thought I did, you know, I won. I'm all, I'm all amped up. Oh, yeah, I made it through. And I go back to the locker room, and all the other fighters look at me like, why is this guy so happy? He obviously doesn't have the fucking winning medal. I'm like, okay, guys, hey, you know. And shit, shit went fast. And it, it was crazy. I was just so happy to be out of it. So two months later, I, I haven't achieved my goal. Part of my goal was I wanted to fight, but I want to win. I want to win. So the state pal championship comes up in Putnam County, and the Putnam County Sheriff's Office is hosting it. And I grew up in some boony-ass fucking cities. I'd never seen nothing like Putnam. I mean, I'm born in Bloomington, Indiana. There was a horse barn in my neighborhood. My sisters rode equestrian, rode fucking horses. This place was something else. And, all right, same shit. Lost the weight, drove up. And we get the tournament bracket, and I have a bye the first day. And I'm feeling really happy about that because... You got to fight twice sometimes to win a championship, state championship fight. I only had to fight once. And guess who is my opponent? The same guy from Sugar Burp. So not only do I find out that I'm getting the rematch, but I'm also realizing this is my moment to get redemption. This is my moment. And at home, you know, I'm texting Garcia all kinds of shit. And... <laughs> I start watching the footage. I start gaming. I'm like, all right, I know what to do. So in, the, in a warehouse in Putnam County in the middle of nowhere during COVID, I won a state championship fight. And <laughs> so many circumstances, <laughs> thank you, led to that moment. <laughs> and all the experiences flooded to my head in that moment. Everything I had been through, of which I can't recount in this long-ass winded, I don't even know how long I've been up here, uh, story, to get to that moment. And I just remembered that I just wanted to appreciate that moment more if I could have, but I was struggling to breathe because I had been punched in the stomach. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Eric Garcia, y'all. Yeah, for Eric Lukoff, ladies and gentlemen. This motherfucker used to text me all the time. My head hurts. My head hurts. Like, yeah, you got hit. Your head's gonna hurt. But he kept through. He was determined. And uh, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, he kind of kind of brought out the the love I had for boxing. And uh, it was happy for me to help him, give him advice whenever he texted me because it was cool. Because it's a beautiful sport. And um, Cross, it's just a weird cross with music and boxing at the same time, especially especially uh, uh, percussionists too. There's like a rhythm to it, and I explained it to you before, so I'm glad you kind of bought into that. So that was really cool. Let me give it up one more time for Eric Glukoff, ladies and gentlemen. 
He's in a lot of projects. Uh, check out uh, uh, Twin and uh, a, a, bunch, a bunch of other things. Uh, Lemon City. Um, whenever you see him around, you ever see his face around, go check out uh, his band. He's a great drummer. He's a good dude. Julio, can you turn my uh, the, the monitor up here a little bit, a little bit more, please? Give it for the great Julio, ladies and gentlemen. I could not be doing this without him. He's been coming over here every week for the last 20, 25 weeks, recording all these stories, and he goes and he cleans them up before I put them up on the podcast. And he believes in this as well, and that's why he's here. So give it up for Julio. I appreciate it. He's the un- unsung hero, for sure. For sure. The silent warrior. So we got two down. We got two more to go. And uh, we got to return. We got to return storyteller right now. Um, he's concentrating. He's concentrating. He's never been on stage very much in his life. So he gets a little nervous. He works in, a, in an office at a desk. He's going to tell a story that he told a long time ago that uh, I appreciated. Uh, it wasn't. It was before we put it on the podcast, and it's a, it's a fun little story, and um, but it does adhere to the two rules. It's true, and it's about him, ladies and gentlemen. Rio Chavarro, come on up here, buddy. The behind the back. Give it up for Uncle Scotchy. Tio, Tio Wiki. So, uh, how many people are from Miami? Just make noise. Awesome. Anybody went to Coral Park? Some of you unfortunate poor fuckers. All right. There they are. Uh, So, I'm really glad I got bumped twice. I was supposed to open the night with a very... uh, Well, let me get to that. Uh, So, give it up for uh, Aaron, the boxer story, and Rebecca, uh, Peta's story. Those are amazing stories. And they both touched on things that, uh, that hit home. And I, I think that that's what we're here to do, what Uncle Scotchy put together was, we're here to connect and be like, hey man, we're kind of all sharing this whole living human body thing experience uh, while being souls, being just slingshot around the sun every year. Um, so my story was supposed to start the night, but it was so depressing that, uh, you know, I didn't want to start at the bottom, and Uncle Scotchy was like, yeah, maybe we should put these other people on first. Let's take them high and then drop them in the middle of their inebriation, because now everybody's been drinking for, like, at least two hours. So so I hope you receive this story well. Um, So I went to school. I went to a couple different schools here in Miami because my parents were poor and moved a lot. Uh, not because they had amazing jobs that took them around the country or the city. No, they were poor. And uh, as a consequence, uh, that's the mentality that I was given as a child. Uh, this story is about how I once had a punk rock band. Um, this story is about my best friends. And it's about uh, the person I am today because of those four years of my life. So I'll start in 1993. I was on the wrestling team at Coral Park. I had a blue mohawk because I liked punk rock music, and that's what you do when you, you know, are in your early teens, and you're like, fuck the man, and the man is like your dad paying your rent. You know what I mean? As far as you know. (laughs) You know. Um, I knew about politics and government, but I was 13, let's face it. Um, 
I knew the world was fucked and I wanted to change it, but I was just going to get this punk rock band together because they had instruments and they let me scream into their microphones. Um, I'm going to change some names because there are a few people here that went to Coral Park, so I don't want to touch that uh, with a 10-foot dick made out of plastic. I do need a drink because I'm not where you guys are. <laughs> All right, so I'm in high school. I'm on the wrestling team. I'm in the chess team and the debate team because I like to argue on chess boards and with people. And, uh, but I have a punk rock band, which is me arguing against myself, trying to realize that I'm not happy about the situation in my life. And uh, so we're going to say uh, David. Right, was my uh, guitarist. I learned how to play uh, five chords on a bass guitar. And our drummer, his name was Santiago. That's what we're calling him. Yeah, and we had uh, a really good time uh, skipping school right after lunch because you knew you did like fourth period and then you had lunch and then you were supposed to have fifth, sixth period. And uh, yeah, we never went to those. Um, we would go to my friend Black Cherry's house who, God rest his soul, was also... Gone, but nobody knows that nickname because that's what I used to call him. And we used to go to Black Cherry's garage and uh, rummage through his father's bar. And they had money, so they had instruments, you know, and, and gear and stuff. And we would practice our music there. And we would do, like, uh, Ramones covers and Misfits covers and Crass and Filth and all these punk rock bands that none of you know anything about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Here's the thing. Uh, I grew up in a house with an alcoholic father uh, who had violent tendencies. Um, my friend uh, David also grew up in a house uh, with a Colombian father with uh, violent tendencies. And, uh, well, Santiago was from Argentina, and uh, his parents just ignored him, which is just as bad as having your ass beat. Thank you, Janet. Thank you, Janet. I'm not being neglected tonight. Um, so, you know, we all grow up with, with trauma. I think that uh, some of us pocket it better than others. Uh, some of us have pocketbooks uh, that pay off our traumas as we grow up. And I went through a lot of therapy, guys. I'm 43. Uh, I'll be 44 this year. I went through a lot of therapy and a lot of rehab to be where I am right now talking to you guys. So I'm really going to enjoy this. Uh, yeah, I've said this story. Um, the emotion is there, but it's not as, like, uh, biting. It's not like lemon in your eye anymore. It's like, uh, like you got a paper cut. So Santiago and David and I start this punk rock band. We're called Hidden Cause because we had just watched Rebel Without a Cause, and we're like, fuck him. He doesn't know, man. There's a hidden cause, man. The man, you know. No, bitch, this Mexican water is good. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. I didn't wait. Sorry. So we start Hidden Cause, and we start playing. Uh, like, we, we finally made a solid set, like 30 minutes, right? And we started off really fast with, like, Minor Threat and Gorilla Biscuits and all this cool straight-edge stuff, which was funny because we all did drugs. Um, and we played straight-edge music to kind of fuck the man with the little X on his hand that is part of an underground movement that nobody knows about. Um, 
And we start playing places like Churchill's and uh, the Pathetic House and the Poor House and the Garage Land and uh, the Button South. And, and they're letting us in because we uh, have mohawks and spike jackets and we're, uh, <laughs> we look like adults that uh, didn't age. We had friends, okay. They let us in. They let us play. We start to book a tour through, uh, has anybody heard of Maximum Rock and Roll? Yeah, yeah, it was an old magazine, an old pulp, and uh, I had pen pals on there, and you could write to people, and uh, it would have, like, this whole section where if you were, uh, you know, a musician or whatever, you can look up classifieds, booking bands, and this and that, right, all these venues all across the country uh, of people that knew about that underground, and so we booked a bunch of shows up to Eastern Seaboard, and uh, by the time we got to Atlanta, I... Uh, had a very healthy respect for drinking in the mornings, alcohol, um, and smoking weed all day, and every once in a while, finding friends that had cocaine. I was 16 years old, you know. Um, let me get back to the part where uh, we're in high school and we're sitting in the civics class, because the only class that all three of us share, and we're sitting all the way in the back of the auditorium and we're planning it out. And David's father had just literally beat the living shit out of him, and he had to lie to the teachers and the, the supervisors of the school and the principal that that happened in a street fight. And they called his parents, and they were like, yeah, 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 I got into a street fight. But his father used to beat the shit out of him, and, um, and David's face is all fucked up, and he's banged up. But really, it's his heart that was damaged. His heart was beaten and, and bruised. And here's a young teenager who loves punk rock and skateboarding with me and my friends. And, uh, and he's sitting there going, I want to get the fuck out. I want to get the fuck out of my house. I want to get the fuck out of Miami. I want to get far as fuck from my dad. And Santiago's like, I hate my family. They act like I don't exist. Like I have all these achievements at school and they don't fucking listen to me. And I tell them that I have a girlfriend and they don't give a fuck. And uh, I'm just like, well, we're just poor. I'll go with you guys. Yeah, I hate my life. My parents just got divorced. I'll, I'll, let's, just, let's just go. Yeah, so we planned this tour. It took us like two months between, you know, because there was an interweb back then. No interwebs. Uh, it was just pen pal shit. That's right, snail mail people. People used to write letters to each other with pens on paper and send them out with postage. You guys know what postage is? Yeah, they're not just for acid. They're not little, they're big, and they got pictures, prices. And uh, so we booked like eight shows up until uh, North Carolina. Uh, we, had, we hit Atlanta. Man, I met this cool old man in Atlanta named Canefish. He said his name was Canefish. And he, he said a few different things, and one of them was, I'm old. I'm, 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 I'm old. I'm old. That's it, hell. That's what that is. He would say that. And also, uh, oh, that's cool and all. So, I, yeah, I hung out with him in Atlanta and stuff. So I got to meet a lot of, I got to make a lot of cool connections with human beings that I probably would never meet again in my life at uh, 16, 17 years old. And when I was 17, uh, just after my birthday, it was like June or July, and um, we're at this place with this guy named Limburger, a punk rock squatter kid that they named Limburger after the cheese because that's exactly what he smelled like. Yeah. No, if you came around Limburger, you were like smoking a cigarette. 
Hey, Lindberger, how you doing? It's good to see you again, man. Um, and Lindberger's like, hey, man, you guys ever tried heroin? And I was like, yeah, sure, this is acting cool. Um, you know, I have a mohawk like this, blue sticking out of my head, and uh, glasses this thick, right? And lots of pimples, because that's what you look like at 17 when you run away from home and you don't have face wash. So we squatted for a few times, for a few weeks, actually, at different friends' houses here and there in Atlanta. Uh, so we had done a show in Orlando. We stayed at a friend's house. Uh, we had done a show in Gainesville. We stayed at a friend's house. Uh, and then we get up to Atlanta, and we're kind of squatting at different places where all these punk rock bands actually have places, like garages and back houses and pool houses uh, and abandoned buildings. Um, and I get to Atlanta, and I meet Lindberger, and Lindberger's like, hey, man, you ever tried heroin? I was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's like Coke, right? <laughs> Pulp Fiction hadn't come out yet. I didn't know. I didn't know. So I took a whack, because it was in powder form. And uh, I just took a little whack. And I was like, wow. And it was the most amazing drug I'd ever tasted in my entire life. Yeah, no, for real. It makes your cock hard or your clit, whatever. But it turns the rest of your body into like this painless, floaty thing. And your mind forgets everybody you've ever hated, anybody who's ever slighted you, or uh, any stress or anxiety is just whew. Yeah, so you give a young 17-year-old rebellious mind heroin, and it does things like somersaults, backflips, cartwheels. And I started to buy more heroin in Atlanta, but we had another show coming up in New Orleans. Actually, no, in uh, Decatur. We had another show in Decatur, and we went over there, and we had nowhere to stay, and we met this dude who's like, I have a trailer, but it's got no air conditioning, it's got no water, it's got no nothing. And we're like, yes, like, yeah. And, uh, and we go there, and uh, my friends are hanging out, and they're like, yeah, I'll try some too, because I bought some off Limburger, and now we're all doing, uh, we're snorting heroin in, uh, in Decatur in a trailer that's got no electricity and no water. But we still had a little boombox, and we were, like, listening to, like, music. So that's good. I decided that day, I was like, I want to try it intravenously. And Lindbergh is like, oh, I know how to do that. And uh, he's like, you want to try it? And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's stronger, right? It lasts longer? Like, this can go on for longer than just snorting it, right? He's like, yeah. I was like, all right, let's try it. And I've never been scared of needles or being punched in the face or anything. I just, I'm kind of like, fuck it, life is cool. Let's try it out. What's the worst that can happen? I could die. <laughs> you only die once. You don't have to worry about it again, right? So I try it, and I liked it. Yeah, I liked it a lot. And then we had a show in New Orleans that same week, and we had to get our shit together, and we got our Greyhound tickets. You guys remember Greyhound? Does that still exist? I don't know. There's like pink buses, blue buses, yellow buses, orange buses now. I don't know which. So uh, we took a Greyhound up to New Orleans. It was just like a few hours. And, uh, of course, we drank all the way up because we had saved up uh, enough to buy uh, quarts of beer. You guys remember those? Quarts? Remember when kids used to drink quarts of beer, 32 ounces of beer? 
Yeah, we couldn't do 40s because we weren't born in the 40s, and we didn't live in the West Coast. And in the West Coast, you can have 40s, but apparently Florida doesn't allow you to have 40s. Anyway, so now we're in New Orleans, and we're, uh, we're shit-faced, and we're meeting our friend at the bus station, and he picks us up, and we're all strung out, and we're beginning to understand that heroin is something, it's like makeup. You kind of need to touch it up every once in a while, or it starts to melt. Excuse me. You start to melt. Uh, your organs start to feel like there's a puppeteer inside and it's just pulling all the strings into this spot going, fuck you, you're not doing anything today. You're not gonna... And you're going to pee out of your ass. Campbell's Chunky Soup. All day and all night until you get more heroin. And you're going to have a banging ass fucking headache and all your bones are going to hurt until you do that shit again. So we found a dealer in New Orleans. And it was really shit heroin. By this time, I had learned what is good and what is bad. Anybody here ever tried cocaine? This is Miami. I'm asking the right question. Right crowd? Okay. For those of you who are not answering, just, just harumph if you've had bad coke and good coke. You know the difference immediately. You're like, oh, this is fucking garbage. And I knew we had garbage. And so we stayed sick for an entire day before the show. And before the show, we all looked like we could eat a human body. Like eat it, like we were starving. That's what we looked like. Forget the tattoos and the fucking spikes and the leather, we looked hungry and dangerous. And we did the show and uh, our drummer, Santiago, Finds a dude who's got really good shit. Put that in quotes. Sell the bunny ears. Really good shit. And we do. We try it. And that's it. We're heroin addicts after that. We're full-blown. Uh, everybody has their own little needle package. And you have your own little alcohol swabs. And you're ready. And we end up in Galveston, Texas. Uh, we met another band uh, that took us out there. I'm not going to name them right now. But one of the guys played for Timescape Zero. I don't know if uh, you guys ever heard of them. They're a South Florida hardcore band that broke up in the early 2000s. Anywho, um, we make it to Galveston, Texas. We're still shooting heroin, but we're doing it now conservatively because we're homeless and squatting in places and are dragging our instruments with barely any energy. And... Uh, in Galveston, I meet this kid named Jason. Uh, Jason's a pastor, and he tries to get me clean, and I tell him, fuck Jesus. Yeah, that was a wrong thing to tell that pastor. Yeah. No, I got, I got, I got the third degree. I, I should have got punched in the face, because I don't, I don't, even now I don't disrespect people's faith. I don't believe in mythologies either, but I don't, I don't disrespect their faiths. Anyway, so... Uh, Hidden Cause is a hit in Galveston. And we connect with another band that is, hey, we're going to Vegas. Yeah, we have like five shows lined up in Vegas. And you guys could probably open up for us. I don't know what the promoter's like or what the lineup is like, but you guys could open up. All right, cool. Yeah, let's do it. So how are we getting there? He's like, oh, we just got to wait for these kids over here at the train station. And then when they tell us to, we jump on a certain train. Oh, yeah, that's cool. What do you, wait, 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 what? We jump on, like we throw our things on, and then we jump on the train. It slows down to like five, 
10 miles per hour, and you throw all your things on, and then you jump on. If you don't make it, shit, you don't make it. We got your instruments. Cool. <laughs> Worth the risk. I mean, you're already doing heroin, you know? It's like, fuck it. Um, we get to Vegas, and... Uh... Oh, you want me to tell you about the part about the train? Yeah, the train actually came to a complete stop for like 30 seconds. Like, <laughs> we're outside of a train yard and the train stops just shy of where the barbed wire fence is around that little area. And we had to run really fast with all our shit all the way around the fence to the one spot in the train where the kid is in the train going, come on! And so the thing is moving as we're throwing like amps and guitars and a fucking drum kit and we're fucking running. And uh, it really is actually just the, the bass, the snare and the, and the cymbals. Um, we get on the train. I'm literally on there going like, when are we gonna take another hit? Like this wasn't exciting enough. I need another hit like now. And so we shoot up in the train, and he's like, we have to get off before the next station um, in Reno. We have to get off, and then we're going to have to figure out a way to Vegas. What? Yeah, yeah, we're going to have to jump off while it's still moving with all our shit, okay? So one person has to jump off first and take something with them when they jump off. Okay. We got lucky twice. It slowed down almost to a halt. And we were literally passing things to somebody running. Uh, Santiago tripped, and that was an interesting scar for a while. Yeah. Get off the train. Now we're in Reno. Um, we make a few phone calls. You guys remember uh, public telephones? Yeah. Uh, we had quarters. We had a ton of quarters in our pockets and dimes because back in the day, you needed to make phone calls. You didn't have a fucking, let me pick this up and finger fuck it, and then it's gonna go to a satellite, and then it's gonna go and talk, and then my friend, all the way on the other side of the planet, is just gonna pick it up. <laughs> yeah, no, it was none of that. It was like, let me find a little box, and put coins in it, and dial things that I remember, or wrote down. You guys remember writing things down, like people's phone numbers? Yeah. yeah. I used to have a little composition book. It was like a mini composition book. And it had all sorts of shit in it. Uh, that was interesting shit, like all kinds of weird shit in there, from poetry to just brain farts. And um, so our friend has his own little book, and he makes a bunch of phone calls. And he's like, dude, we're in luck. OK, our friend's going to come through, and he's going to pick us up. OK, cool, when? Tomorrow. So where are we sleeping? Over there, right next to the train station. All right, that's cool. We get to Vegas the next day. It's evening time. The guy picks us up. He's got a forerunner. And we think, man, this guy must be a drug dealer because the car works. The windows, the AC, the muffler, the car runs. He's not scared when he's driving. It's legal. This is awesome. Well, the guy happened to be like this 40-year-old punk rock guy who was promoting all these shows in Vegas. Uh, not on the Strip because that's where tourists and rich people are. No, no, no. Way far off the Strip, northwest of the Strip of Vegas. And there's a lot of new developments coming up there. And they drop us off at a new development. And I'm thinking, cool, this is like a new place. No, no, it's not finished yet. And we're illegally squatting there. There's no windows. There's no doors. There's no air conditioning. There's no running water. It's just a bunch of empty buildings. And we have to be out by 6 in the morning. 
because the construction continues. So we get there, middle of the night, we all have to shoot up again before morning, before we have to wake up and run out of there. And we're supposed to play a show that night, and we decide to actually forego that because there's a guy that's going to hook us up with a new stash of heroin, and that's fucking awesome. We didn't have a dealer in Vegas, so the fact that somebody found us somebody and they're going to meet us, this is great shit. Guys, I'm 18 years old shooting heroin in Vegas in abandoned buildings with a punk rock band that was supposed to pay, play at a garage party. Yeah, like we left Miami to go play a garage party and shoot heroin. Anyway, um, we end up in that squad for about two weeks. We did one show. It was at a garage. You know, we got fed. They gave us booze. And then basically we started panhandling and playing on the streets and fucking around and robbing people. You know when you rob people, not like the gun type or the knife type, you just kind of outsmart them into giving you money. Yeah, you stand at a gas station on a telephone, and you're like, dude, man, my car's like eight miles back. I just, I need like 10 bucks, man. I just need to buy like the can so I can put gas. So I can, you know, and people are offering me rides, and eventually I, I made it like 100 bucks a day. I got that good at it. I became an actor, I have to tell you, after that. No, I mean, I took some theater in high school, but uh, could never prepare me for life on the road as a junkie, punk rock kid. We're in this squat, and we score this shit that's fucking amazing. It's on our second week. We're in Vegas, and we're in this abandoned place. By the way, I, I went back many years later, and the name of the place is, like, uh, Silver Springs, and it's a whole community, you know? Uh, you know, like a gated community where it's, it's, they don't know that shit happened there anymore. Um, we score this shit, and uh, I'm the guy that went to get it. You know, I got like $150 worth of, uh, I don't know if you guys know what an eight ball is, but there's an equivalent in heroin. It just doesn't make you want to play pool or stay up talking to people all night. And so I, it's my turn, right? I went to get it, so I have to try it first. That's kind of the rule. You bought it, you try it first. And I did, and I was all right. I took a little, just a small little meh. It was great. It was really like I disappeared. My body disappeared. It was just like a soul with like blinking Cheshire cat eyes and a smile. I disappeared. All right. So now they're ready, right? Santiago and David are ready to try it. And they're like, let's spike up. So I start to break it up and to cook it. Yeah, a lot of people do spoons. When you've been traveling for a long time and you lose a spoon, you end up using anything you can. So we had a Coca-Cola can and we just split it in half and we use the bottom half that's concave, like a little bowl. And we put it in there and you just put the lighter underneath and wait for it to cook. And once it was ready, we grabbed a little shred of cotton, which actually wasn't cotton, it was an old t-shirt piece. And that's just to soak up the junk. You have to take the junk out of the junk in order to do junk. I don't know if you know that, but... Uh, so uh, we did that, and uh, I give a little pinch to David, and he's happy. I set it up all over again, he lays down. Uh, we don't have couches, it was on the ground. And, uh, and Santiago, David, bam, uh, 
they're good. And I'm like, well, it's turn for the doctor, right? The doctor's turn. And uh, I take my shit, and it's good. It's good. I disappear for a little bit. I start thinking back that I hadn't called my mother in three years, not even from a public telephone. I start thinking about how uh, David's father was probably wondering if his son ran away because he was gay or because he beat the living shit out of that child for 10 years. And Santiago's parents, maybe they didn't even notice that he was gone. And I'm thinking all these things. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever tried heroin or an opiate or you had surgery and you took a lot of those happy pills so they gassed you. You know, you just kind of let go of everything. It's like a very slow, easy release. It's nice. It's mellow. It's cool. You just kind of melt. And you're like, this is where I want to be. And I come to... I don't know how much time has passed, but the sun is set at this point. It's, it's like I left the house at noon. I got back maybe like at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. But now the sun is set. And in Vegas, my whole clock's fucked up. But David uh, and Santiago aren't moving. And they're looking a little... Uh, so I shake them. I shake David. And he starts to vomit. And he turns over on his side. And I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? And he vomits one more time. Uh, and I didn't know that that would be his last breath. And then I turn to Santiago. And Santiago's cold. Cold like your fucking drink in your hand right now. Cold. And I'm not freaking out because I'm really, really high on heroin. I'm just thinking that we had made a pact to never tell our parents anything about anything, whatever happened, because fuck them, because fuck the man, right? That was our pact. Uh, so there's a, a little turn around the building we were at to go over a wall that hadn't been finished, and then down at the end of the block, there's a 7-Eleven with a payphone uh, right at the front by the door. So I grabbed everybody's shit, I grabbed all our shit, and I moved it to another building on the way to the 7-Eleven, and I go to the 7-Eleven, and uh, I call an ambulance. And I say, uh, there's some people overdosing, and I think they're dying right now. You need to send an ambulance right now. And they asked me a bunch of questions, and I just gave them the street corner and uh, the cross street, and I waited, and I watched them show up. And then I ran over there and said, it's over there. And they're like, did you call? I'm like, no, but there's somebody crying. And, you know, I lied my way through that. And um, my two best friends, my, my bandmates, the people I ran away with, uh, yeah, they didn't, uh, they didn't make it back. I ended up staying in Vegas, uh, still shooting heroin and uh, getting arrested by a cop after I was pissing on his window while he was in the car writing a report. I was pissing on his window because he beat up a streetwalker that I'd met before who was really sweet. She just was a meth head. That doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a fucked up person. You can still be a sweet person if you're an addict or you're mentally traumatized or you're fucked, right, by your family or otherwise. And so I saw him beat her, and then I just came up to his window. But again, I was on heroin, so I don't remember really when that happened, but I was there pissing in his window, 
And he opened the door, and I fell over. And uh, I'm easy prey, because I have combat boots that are up to here, and my pants are up to here. So I just kind of toppled over and uh, took me out, arrested me. I got fingerprinted. Uh, 17 other Las Vegas police officers showed up. And, uh, and I got taken to county, and they ran my fingerprints. And they're like, oh, this guy's been reported a missing child since he was 16. And I was uh, 20 years old, so some time had passed. So I was booked as an adult, but I was extradited back to Florida because of the fact that I had been a missing child and been reported uh, at the federal level. So I had to be taken back to my state of origin. Um, I went to jail for a little while, and uh, I got to tell you, has anybody here ever had withdrawal symptoms to anything? Dick, vagina, drugs? Anything? A job you miss? Yeah, no, fuck all that. Fuck all that. Fuck all that. Withdrawal is like the worst thing I don't wish upon my enemy. Actually, I wish it on Trump. That's it. But uh, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody else on earth. It's a terrible experience to go through. Uh, you, you really feel like you could, uh, with your hands, tear a human apart to find heroin. There's got to be the spleen. There's got to be something in the spleen. And... Uh, I get out of jail, I serve my time, and I have to, I'm in a mandatory, <laughs> my parents uh, hadn't seen me in four years, and they saw me in court for the first time. Yet my mohawk had grown out a little bit, so I didn't look as good as I wanted them to see me as. I'm kidding, I didn't give a fuck. It was amazing uh, that they even could recognize me, because I didn't look like me anymore. I looked like the shell of a person that I used to be. And uh, I end up going to a mandatory 90-day uh, rehabilitation clinic um, at the insistence of the prosecutor, no less. Um, they believed in me. I had good grades before I, I, I turned south. Uh, yeah, I, I thought I was a smart kid. I don't know what happened. Um, I get out, right? I get back in, and I have to do another 90 days. And I go back to jail for another 30 days. Uh, by this time, I'm 20 years old. And uh, this September will be 21 years that I haven't touched heroin. It'll also be 21 years since I have avoided uh, reconnecting with the parents of my two best friends who who died of an overdose, because I just can't. I've made amends with a lot of people in my life that I've had to throughout my therapy and healing, but I think that those parents, um, may they have been going through their own journey, sure. May they have had their own traumas, sure. But uh, fuck them. They lost their children because they were shitty parents. And uh, also, I was too ashamed to tell them and too scared to be like, hey, let me tell you about what your kids' last four years of their lives were like. So I guess the moral of the story, if there's a moral, is um, be good to everybody, especially your fucking children. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, guys, support Uncle Scotchy, support Bar Nancy. They got T-shirts and hats, and they're dope as fuck. Smooth segue to merch. Merch, Jeez. baby, merch. Let's sell it. Let's do it. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Rio Chavarro, ladies and gentlemen.
He needed a drink so bad to tell a story that he never took a sip from. Uh, give it up for him again. That's a very revealing story that um, that was could not have been easy to tell. It's funny how people sort through the things that weigh on them while they tell these stories and retell these stories no matter how long ago it was. Um, that was really cool. That's really cool about these nice ladies and gentlemen. Um, and I appreciate Rio retelling that story. You did a, lo a much better job telling the story this time. Uh, and, and I really appreciate that. That was really cool. So uh, thank you for that fun little happy fucking family tale that you told right after Easter. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for coming out to Uncle Stachi's Storytelling Extravaganza. I appreciate this. But ladies and gentlemen, these, these stories need to be true and they need to be about you. And I appreciate all that. Thanks for being here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for keeping it open, Ben. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you.